Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Unusually, a power trio of segments today. John Clark will explain the politics of that so-called trucker convoy in Ottawa. Dave Zirin will talk about a suit against pro football for its pervasive racism. And Justine Medina will talk about working in Amazon and trying to organize a union there. First, the truckers, or alleged truckers. Their convoy is hardly the spontaneous expression of working-class rage that its publicists would have you believe, an interpretation that some on the left are sadly embracing. As the New York Times put it the other day in an article on the organizers behind the event, high above the clot of trucks in Ottawa's Parliament Hill and hotel rooms just out of the fray are the war rooms behind the operation. From them, a team of self-appointed leaders, some with military and right-wing organizing backgrounds, have orchestrated a disciplined and highly coordinated occupation. For more, here's John Clark, a Toronto-based organizer and activist. For many years, he was the leading figure in the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. He retired in 2019 and is now teaching social justice activism at York University. John Clark. So I keep hearing on the social media that the trucker convoy up in Ottawa, and it seems to be stretching across your country to some degree and maybe catching over here, um, it's really an authentic working class uprising and expression of discontent. How true are those assertions? It's unassailably the case that this so-called trucker convoy is... Uh, something that's been organised by fascists, organised by white supremacists. The original group of five leaders who pulled the thing together are described by Anti-Hate Canada as part of the far-right ecosystem. It includes people like a man like Pat King. You can find his videos online, and he, in one of them I noticed he, he made the memorable comment that, uh, uh, that the official languages of Canada, now English and French, will be, uh, will be Mandarin and Hebrew if we don't do something about it. So I think it gives you a bit of a sense of the sort of the perspective of the people organising it. They were able to raise $10 million for this venture. Uh, which I've done a bit of community organising myself, and that's a that's a pretty amazing sum of money. And now it transpires that several uh, major business ventures have uh, have funded them as well. They've organised this event. Their demands are, on the face of it, quite nonsensical. They're demanding the right to cross the border without being vaccinated in trucks, uh, when they know perfectly well that the United States has the same provisions in effect, and they wouldn't be able to go anywhere. They're also demanding of the federal government that it reverse vaccine mandates that have been implemented by the provincial level of government. But what's really, I think, fascinating, uh, this group Canada First, that seems to be very central to the thing and the core leaders adhere to it, they're advancing a demand that really is a kind of a, uh, you might call it a premature march on Rome, in that, uh, in that what they've come up with is a strategy of calling on the governor general under the Canadian system, that's the unelected representative of the Queen, calling on the governor general to dissolve the parliament, disperse the uh, elected members of parliament and replace it with a governing committee that will consist of them and such members of the opposition parties as they find themselves able to work with. So this is quite clearly a far-right initiative. Whatever you stand, wherever you stand on issues of public health measures, this is clearly something that's coming from from the far-right. And that's simply, uh, I think, an unassailable reality. And what connections, organizational and or financial, do they have with the uh, the US far-right? A great deal is being made of that. There is unquestionably, very understandably, Canada shares an enormous border with the United States and the population of the United States is 10 times larger than Canada. So the far right, like any initiative, has uh, a lot of cross-pollinization with with people on the other side of the border. There's no doubt that significant numbers of far rightists from the US are participating. There's no doubt that some of the funding is coming from there. But I'm always very leery of buying into this agenda that uh, this sort of perspective that uh, Canada is this nice, kind, 
gentle place and uh, anything that uh, goes wrong has to be the result of corruption from the great Satan to the South. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's accurate. Uh, there's more than enough hatred and racism and backwardness in this country for the far right to, uh, to be able to organise this initiative. Undeniably links to the United States, but I don't think it's driving it. I was going to say, uh, you have your own far right uh, groups in the far west of Canada. But on the other hand, Ontario itself, the cosmopolitan core has uh, seen some pretty right wing governments. So yeah, what about the geography of the right? What's the nature of the Canadian right before this, uh, this convoy and brought it to the front pages? There are far-right movements that are taking root and growing all across the country. There's no question about that. Uh, Quebec is a very particular situation and a very, unfortunately, quite robust far-right. I, I believe that the main driving forces coming from this initiative are Westerners. Many of them have been linked to far-right front organisation uh, a party that is devoted to Western separatism that goes under the, uh, the name of Wexit. And, and so this is largely the core group certainly seem to be uh, seem to be Westerners, uh, although I don't want to buy into stereotypes of, you know, Western bigotry and such like. Ontario itself had a pretty right wing government right uh, over the years. Doug Ford and then, you know, what's his name? Uh, uh, Harris. Yeah, Mike Harris, who was yeah, Mike Harris was clearly the closest thing Canada has seen to uh, to Thatcher or Reagan. Very pivotal, cutting edge. And. You asked that question, Doug, I think it, it raises something that's very significant. You see it very much with the far right and the Republican Party. And I think that's the case here, is that one of the things that the organisers of this convoy have realised, two years ago, they had a dry run and they organised a convoy of trucks uh, that came from the West and went to Ottawa, not quite as disruptive and high profile, but still a very significant event. They called it United We Roll. It was a, basically a climate denying exercise, promoting pipelines and such like. And what they sort of realized out of that were two things. One is that raising those kinds of issues gives them a base uh, or gives them a periphery that is beyond their, their immediate hardcore far right group. And the other thing is, is that there is a section of the political establishment, the Conservative Party and the so-called People's Party, an offshoot of the Conservatives, that will enthusiastically back them and endorse them. Uh, at this point, nervously, the leader of the Conservatives Party is asking them to go home because he's very scared about a confrontation. But all along, Conservative politicians have endorsed and supported this event and been uh, seemingly oblivious to the unsavoury characters that they're dealing with. Not that they're not quite unsavory themselves. No, I'm curious about the elite base of the major uh, parties. Uh, the the Conservative Party, what is its base in, in the capitalist class compared with the Liberals? I had thought that the Liberal Party was kind of the, the party of Bay Street and the corporate establishment. Uh, is that a fair picture? I wouldn't entirely say that. The ruling class in Canada is, uh, is uh, divided or goes where the smart money is uh, with regards to those parties. Generally speaking, if you look at things like the big major media and who they endorse. They tend to endorse the Conservatives instead of the Liberals. But the Canadian system has been very much based on a sort of a tag team operation between the, the Liberals and the Tories. They're both unassailably parties of big business. The Liberals, as the saying goes, uh, campaign on the left and govern on the right. They have a sort of a, a you know, if the, the Tories the term here is used, as in Britain, the Tories, the Conservatives, if they come in and uh, proceed very aggressively and there becomes a sort of a weariness with that agenda, in come the Liberals to more quietly and gently consolidate that agenda. I mean, there are obvious comparisons to the Republicans and Democrats. And Trudeau himself is running a quite unpopular government, right? His approval ratings are quite low. Absolutely. Perhaps, again, some comparisons to Biden, but but we are seeing a real crisis of legitimacy and credibility for parties of the political centre that have been associated with the implementation of the, uh, of the neoliberal agenda. And that's absolutely true of the Liberal Party. They've been able to form minority governments, which they don't have a, an electoral majority in the parliaments, but they've been able to form minority governments the last two times, but they've scraped in by default by virtue of the, the, the failure of a clear-cut alternative to be posed either on the left by the New Democratic Party or on the right by the Conservatives. But uh, they're hanging on. They're not popular. 
there's not a lot of enthusiasm for them. And that hostility to that discredited centre is, I think, very much one of the factors that's driving this whole convoy, this notion of, you know, Trudeau, the, the globalist puppet of the shadowy conspiracy coming out of Davos and all this kind of nonsense is actually very much part of, it reflects that sort of hostility to the centre. What is it they want? They advertise most prominently their, their hostility to vaccine mandates, which is still something that amazes me, why a political movement could be so energised uh, and organised around uh, just reasonable public health measures. But in any case, um, what is it besides that? You, you mentioned climate. Uh, is some of it Western oil interests that's uh, pushing um, this kind of agenda? I don't doubt that there are Western oil interests involved in funding and supporting, but I think there really is an ideologically very committed far-right movement that is looking to grow, that is looking to actually ultimately their goal is to their goal is to to take power and preserve the purity of the white race or whatever filth they have on their uh, on their agenda and they're they're involved in a building process and uh, and it's not just in Canada internationally the pandemic and coronavirus denial anti-mask anti-vaccine stuff has given them a, a kind of an exciting periphery that they haven't had before and i think they're exploiting that they're milking it for all they can uh, for all they can get i'm speaking with the toronto-based organizer and activist john clark what about the rest of the agenda i mean are they just looking for a classic white supremacist authoritarian government is that the the, the, the fundamental uh, politics behind them I'm not party to their deranged deliberations, but uh, but my guess is, yes, that's that's exactly ultimately what they have in mind. But what they represent at the moment is a force that is taking all of the sort of uh, individualistic libertarian sentiment around uh, vaccine denial and, uh, and and really capturing the leadership of that. I have to say that I, I was just involved in a discussion with folks in the uh, in the UK, and uh, I, I was astounded. And I've come across the same thing in Canada of people who who consider themselves to be leftists, socialists, who feel they must support this convoy because they're standing up to this shadowy conspiracy to uh, put microchips into us or whatever it is. That sentiment is taking hold, uh, and and the right is making the far right is making very substantial gains out of it. It's a classic situation where, if fascists are able to actually control the streets, take the public square, then they'll grow. They'll they'll grow enormously, and uh, unfortunately, that's what's unfolding uh, at the moment uh, here in Canada. We're starting to see mobilization against them. It's coming very much from the base. It's taking a rather spontaneous turn, but we're starting to see people challenge them. But the truth is that there hasn't been any calls coming from major trade unions and such like for there to be decisive action against them. And indeed, I, I would certainly argue that they're really filling a vacuum that has been created by the by the relative passivity of trade union movements and, and the weakness of the political left. Who are the people on the streets in um, Ottawa? We hear, you know, that they're the authentic representatives of the working class, that their ordinary truck drivers are just fed up with it all. I don't really see that uh, ordinary truck drivers can just park a rig for a few weeks and not work. I, that's hard to believe. But who are they exactly? <laughs> no, I mean, I've I've worked in places and generally speaking, I didn't get to take the equipment home with me. And I think that's true of truck drivers if they work for a company that owns trucks. Clearly, what you have is that, for one thing, they're not mainly truck drivers involved in the mobilization of any kind, but those that are participating are right-wing people who are owner-operators, who have their own vehicles. As a matter of fact, the trucking industry in Canada is a seething cauldron of working-class grievances. It's an enormously racialized workforce, 20% uh, South Asian. You have uh, the deregulation of the industry. You have rampant wage theft taking place. Uh, if, this, if this were organized on the actual grievances of working class people who drove trucks for a living, it would take on a very, very different dimension. So, no, I, I don't think even at the level of, of, of calling it a truck convoy that it has any authenticity about it. 
It seems that a bunch of the leaders of this movement are ex-military and ex-cops, and the cops have seemed very slow to clear them out. Uh, they cleared the bridge uh, to Detroit, but that's because you know the motor industry is involved. But yeah, as yeah. for clearing the downtown of um, Ottawa, they don't seem to be too much in a hurry. Uh, how do you explain that? No, you're right. They, they had to act in Windsor because the Ambassador Bridge over to Detroit is probably the preeminent chokehold and the, the highway component of the supply chain. They, they couldn't let that continue. But uh, the cops have been a de facto babysitting service for these people. Videos have appeared of police officer in Calgary uh, pledging his allegiance to this. Uh, there's an actual association of police officers who are backing it. Their head of security, their actual head of security, is a former RCMP officer uh, who was actually involved in the security detail for the prime minister. Uh, another one of their leading representatives is uh, a former military intelligence officer reckoned to be Canada's leading uh, authority on counterterrorism. They've put together a formidable who's who uh, when it comes of uh, when it comes to uh, support from the security state and the rank and file cops love them to pieces. I mean, that's all there is to it. I, a friend of mine actually phoned the Ottawa, one of the Ottawa police stations to complain and was uh, it was actually informed ominously by the cop that the conversation was being recorded. You know, it's, it's a love in between the uh, between the police and the uh, and the trucker convoy. You said you weren't hearing much from the Canadian unions. Why do you suppose that is? The truth is that there may be some calculations about a section of the membership supporting it, I think. But generally speaking, most of the unions that are pretty low ebb in terms of mobilization and in terms of readiness to uh, mobilize, what's at root here is the, the notion of uh, the notion of issuing a call to confront this uh, disgusting uh, initiative uh, is just not in the frame of reference of most of the trade union leaders in Canada at this uh, at this particular moment. Although I must say that the Public Service Alliance of Canada, which represents most of the federal employees, did belatedly call a, uh, a demonstration in Ottawa, a march that got very, very significant uh, support. But what we're also seeing, of course, is people in communities turnout. The supply runs that go into the um, to, to, to maintain the, the truck convoy, uh, people in a particular neighbourhood, a couple of dozen people turned out to block it uh, over the weekend. And hundreds and hundreds of people came out from their homes to support it and created a major crisis for them. They've been blocked in Edmonton. They've been blocked in Vancouver. So I think we're starting to see from the base uh, people identify this for what it is and, and, and challenge it. And uh, that may well lead to something more concrete from the uh, from the trade unions. Although I don't think it's just a matter of confronting the convoy, as important as that is. I think it's more that we're in a situation where these people, fascists, have been able to obtain the political momentum because there has been so much passivity on the issues uh, of hardship that are being generated by the pandemic crisis. People facing the loss of their homes, people facing an interruption of income, healthcare systems degraded. On all these fronts, there's an acute need for there to be political action and social mobilization. And if that vacuum remains, uh, I think it's fairly self-evident that the right is going to continue to fill it, which will be nothing less than catastrophic. And finally, I, you know, I hear a lot of people in the U.S. on the U.S. left offering some support to these guys. I imagine there's something similar going on in Canada. What do you attribute that to? Is it just misinformation or is there something uh, more pathological at work? It's partly misinformation. I mean, I, I have to say I'm not aware of organized left groups that have taken a position of supporting the convoy. Uh, but I am uh, seeing on the sort of the the internet, the social media circuit and everything, a lot of people who identify themselves as left who are expressing support. Um, what I, I think has happened is, is, is that there has been, in response to the pandemic, there has been this kind of distorted anti-authoritarian perspective that buys into kind of conspiracy ideas. So the pandemic is seen as a plot. Measures of public health are perceived as state authoritarianism. Not that there isn't some element of truth to that in very definite ways, but there's a sort of hostility to the protection of public health. And it's reached the point where some on the left have degenerated so far that they're prepared to actually 
block out a perception of what this thing really is and describe it falsely as an elemental working class mobilization. I saw one pathetic individual whose Facebook page described it as a workers uprising. I, I just find that just sad beyond belief. I mean, people like that are just, what can I say? They've lost their way. We've just got to move on and build something without them. That was John Clark, who for many years led the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. He's now the Packer Visitor in Social Justice at York University in Toronto. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. When I pulled out of Pittsburgh, rolling down that eastern seaboard. I got my diesel wound up and she's a running like I never before. There's a speed zone ahead with all right. I don't see a cop in sight. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. I got my ten forward gears and a George overdrive. I'm taking little white pills and my eyes open wide. I just passed a Jimmy in a white. I've been a passing everything in sight. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. But it seems like a month since I kissed my baby goodbye. I could have a lot of women, but I'm not a like a some other guy. I could find one to hold me tight, but I could never make believe it's all right. Six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. That was some of Dave Dudley's Six Days in the Road, which has a very different feel from parked for three weeks in the streets of Ottawa. Next, the Brian Flores suit. Flores, who is black, was fired last month as coach of the Miami Dolphins. He sued the club, two others, and the National Football League over the league's profound racism. Flores claims the New York Giants conducted a sham interview with him to satisfy the league's largely cosmetic diversity rule. He's also accusing the Dolphins' owner, the real estate developer Stephen Ross, of having offered him $100,000 a game to throw them so that the team would get better draft picks. Flores' suit could blow up the country's most popular sport. Here with more is Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation and author of The Kaepernick Effect, which he discussed in this show in September. Dave is also the producer of the forthcoming documentary Behind the Shield, The Cultural Politics of NFL Football. Dave Zirin. Uh, First of all, who is Brian Flores before we get to his uh, grievance? Yeah, Brian Flores is the former uh, head football coach with the Miami Dolphins he has led them to two key led them i should say to two consecutive winning seasons it was the first time the miami dolphins had two consecutive winning seasons in two decades uh, and brian flores is a very accomplished assistant coach before that with the new england patriots under the famous bill belichick so that's brian flores that's his background that's his resume it's it's pretty platinum plated and so why is he suing yeah, I mean, he's suing the National Football League and most centrally his former employer, the Miami Dolphins. I mean, he's suing because he believes that not only was he fired for being a black head coach, but then he wasn't taken seriously in the subsequent uh, interviews that he did with other teams, even with this resume. Because the NFL has this uh, requirement that they call the Rooney Rule, where you have to interview, I believe, two people per hiring cycle, two or three per hiring cycle who fit the designation of quote unquote minority. This means anybody who's not white and women, basically. And that, that's what it is. And you fulfill this requirement of the Rooney rule. And for most of these billionaire franchise owners who there are no black franchise owners, uh, the Rooney rule is like a, a box to check. And it's a, it's a roll your eye, sop to public relations and the black candidates in particular, it's believed and has long been said, just aren't taken seriously. And the Rooney rule is toothless and ineffective. And Brian Flores felt that firsthand when he had an, a forthcoming interview with the New York Giants and received a text from his former, uh, his former boss, Bill Belichick, congratulating him on getting the job. And Brian Flores said, uh, I haven't done the interview yet. And Bill Belichick said, whoops, I meant to text the other guy. The white guy, whose first name is also Brian. And that little mix-up is re- really seems like it was the straw that broke the camel's back and, and was, is why Brian Flores has issued this lawsuit, even though it 
might ensure that he's never hired on an NFL team again. But as he said in his statement, he thinks this is about a much greater principle than that. Yeah, he has some pretty strong language about when no, I'm trying to find it uh, in the complaint. Oh, yeah. The owners watch the games from atop NFL stadiums in their luxury boxes while their majority black workforce put their bodies in the line every Sunday, taking vicious hits and suffering debilitating injuries while the NFL and its owners reap billions of dollars. I mean, that's a pretty accurate description of the whole game, right? Yes, very accurate description. And that's what I think has uh, people in the NFL very nervous. I mean... It's so interesting because Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the National Football League, he talks about the NFL as if it's this institution and the NFL is against discrimination and the NFL is against all forms of bigotry and the NFL wants to be a force against these things. And he speaks about the NFL like it's this office at uh, 555 Park Avenue, but that's not the NFL. The NFL is 31 billionaires who run these franchises. That's the NFL. And among that coterie of people, I want to quote uh, Mike Silver, a longtime reporter and, and journalist for the NFL Network, so a true insider. He said there is structural racism in the National Football League, and there are racists in positions of power, and I'm done uh, stepping around these realities. I mean, and this is somebody who is on the inside. So you have the NFL as this, you know, Park Avenue institution saying we are against discrimination, but the people who actually have the power in the league have only shown themselves to be more than equipped to use the art of discrimination to keep the coaching fraternity almost entirely lily white. Now, take a little detour here. You said 31 billionaires. Is this a play thing for them or do they make money on these uh, teams? Well, first, to be clear, I think some listeners, and I know you're, you're avid sports listeners, <laughs> uh, will say 31 billionaires, but there are 32 teams. Does that mean one of the, the franchise owners is, uh, you know, like not, not a billionaire, doesn't have all three commas? And it's not that there aren't 32 billionaires. It's that one of the teams, the Green Bay Packers, is actually fan-owned. Fans have shares of the team. There is no franchise owner in Green Bay. So that's why I say 31 and not 32 billionaires, but everybody who owns a team is a billionaire for no other reason that to even have an NFL team requires at this point, at least two to $3 billion. And some of these teams are being valued now in excess of five, six, $7 billion. I mean, it is a mammoth operation. Here's a statistic for you, Doug, of the top 100 watch shows in 2021, 75 of them were NFL games. And there's not even another sport in the other 25. Trump was making a big deal about how, how their audience was slipping. That's, that's not yeah, that's true. utter bull. <laughs> <laughs> it's pure bull from Donald Trump. Uh, I guess you got to bleep that out. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, I just realized that. I got it. It's like Republicans love saying in polls, and there was a recent one that they, 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 they feel like this was an actual 45% of Republicans said they believe that the NFL does too much for its black players. That's a hell of a statement if you think about it. I, I talked to a couple of players and I told them this and they actually laughed out loud and they said, what does the NFL do for us? You know, what are you talking about? The NFL does too much for black players. And what they're really saying is that, you know, that black players in recent years have chosen to not just entertain, but have something to say from this incredible platform that is the National Football League. And that's really what they're against. They're against the fact that the NFL isn't firing them because, what does the NFL do for black players? I mean, they're certainly not offering any sort of managerial jobs uh, after they play. Uh, they treat retired players like crap. The average career is only three and a half years and the contracts aren't guaranteed. I mean, what in the blue hell are 45% of Republicans talking about saying the NFL does too much for black players? I mean, some of this comes from this mentality, too, that black athletes are supposed to be just grateful to have the opportunity to play and aren't, in fact, workers in this multi-billion dollar cultural behemoth. That just returned to my previous question, though. Are these oh, teams profitable? <laughs> are they profitable? Do they make money? Yes. Uh, there's an old expression, uh, owning an NFL franchise is like being a bartender at spring break. You don't have to be good at it to make a lot of money. And the valuations of the franchises are through the roof. Now, you asked about the type of person who owns the team. It's very different than other sports. In some of the other sports, uh, like basketball, the, the owners tend to skew younger. They tended to have made a lot of money in either tech or hedge funds. And 
you know, and having a team is basically an investment. It's a play thing. It's part of the portfolio. In the NFL, a lot of these franchise owners, it's been in their families for generations. Some of these franchises were bought for less money than your listeners could find in the cushions of their couch. And I mean, I'm, I'm being serious about that. Like for dollars, you're, you're getting an NFL franchise in 1921. And, you know, the, these franchises have just exploded. For, that's why I said the statistic about, and I got off track, I'm sorry, but that's why I said the statistic about the TV ratings. And the TV ratings for the Super Bowl, or by the way, the, the largest in years, over 113 million people. I mean, the NFL is really like the last remaining vestige of a monoculture. Uh, it's one of the last things that, that people come together to watch in this sliced and diced country. And so that, that's why commercials cost $7 million a pop. Just uh, two years ago, the commercials were $5 million a pop. So, I mean, so that, that's how valuable this real estate is because commercial interests and businesses know that this is where you're going to get the most eyeballs. Mostly TV money, is that where it comes from? Yeah, most of it is billions and billions of dollars in television money and rights fees, but they also have revenue streams and the public funding of stadiums, of course, uh, has been incredibly lucrative for the franchises. But Doug, I thought you would find very interesting, uh, like the Super Bowl commercials. Like I find the commercials fascinating because, you know, these are NFL owners and this is the most valuable real estate in all of television. And so there's a line out the door to spend $7 million for 30 seconds. So who they choose says something about where they see the future of this economy going. And I just found it very interesting that in this year's commercials, it was dominated by crypto and by gambling. <laughs> the 2000 Super Bowl was all dot-coms, and then they all fell exactly. apart like several months later. So I don't know. Exactly. Is this the, is this the kiss of death? All about, I remember the one year it was all about like online employment services like monster.com and like promoting the gig economy. And I just found it really interesting this year. It's like, oh, so this is where some of the richest people in the country see the U.S. economy going. And crypto and gambling, that certainly makes me feel secure. Yeah, really. Well, it's a very solid foundation, isn't it? Okay, now back to the, the, the race story. So about 70% of the players are black in the NFL, right? Yes. And, of course, none of the owners are. And none of the senior um, executives or coaches either, right? There are um, a couple of executives and, and now two black coaches. It was down to one. And that second black coach, his name is Lovey Smith. He was almost certainly hired because of pressure from the Flores lawsuit. Uh, and it, it, so this is a real crisis, a PR crisis, because they they need young viewers, you know, and you can't really have a cultural force like the NFL survive if it's viewed as racist, not with this young generation uh, that we have right now. So they're desperate to put forward a, a face forward that says we're actually against discrimination and please don't point out that we actually practice it. I'm speaking with Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation. What's happening to the supply of players, young people coming into football? I mean, are people getting scared away by the brain injuries? Well, if you go by Pop Warner numbers, that's the number of people playing youth tackle football, that's gone down dramatically. But that doesn't mean there still isn't an avid pipeline that comes through high school. It's just now much more commonplace that people don't play tackle until they're 14 years old. Because, um, you know, even, even at that, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of potential brain injury, CTE, that's chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which comes from the repetitive hits in football games. Not so much the big hits, but just the repetitive ones. No, the pipeline is still there. It's just... It's really dying out in wealthier suburban areas. And I find that very interesting because what it's going to mean is that the pipeline, which is always skewed towards poor, it's always skewed towards, uh, towards black communities, particularly in the south of the United States, that pipeline is going to uh, just get, get bigger and bigger as, as more middle class kids, white kids, uh, their parents are, are like, no, my, my, my baby's too precious for brain injury. Yeah, we wouldn't let our kid play football. He's an avid sports guy, but we wouldn't let him do that one. Yeah, I understand why. These numbers are just stunning. I mean, this is obviously a very racist society. The labor market is extremely stratified by race. We all know these things, but these are extreme numbers. So how did it get to be so extreme, virtually close to zero versus 70? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's staggering, too, because especially when you think about a lot of the white head coaches – in the National Football League, most of the white coaches in the National Football League never played a down of NFL football. When you consider that, then you also have to think about all the black coaches out there in society who never played NFL football, who don't even have a chance 
to get a chance. At least if you played in the league, you might be able to get an interview. But it's it's really staggering. I mean, I think it's because the NFL has long adopted a business model of black talent under the thumb of white authority. They think that's what their viewers want, that they're comforted by that fact, and they're willing to project and sell that reality. Like, look at all of these black talent. Look at also the destruction and violence that are wrought by the black body or against the black body. And look at these sort of white overseers. I mean, this is why Cornell West, he called the whole situation a plantation. And I'm not using that word because it's how loaded it is. But I'm not surprised that Cornell West was sort of brought to that point, looking at the reality of the situation. It really doesn't seem like an exaggeration. It really does seem. No, 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 no. It's, it's um, I, as I said, the labor market is very racialized, a racialized hierarchy in the labor market. But this is just such an extreme case that it's, yeah. it's, it's just curious how it came to be and how it perpetuates itself. Well, it may not survive. What, what will this lawsuit do to it? Could it actually change things? Well, that's why I mentioned earlier about the NFL's real concern about losing a young generation of viewers uh, if they're perceived as racist. I think that this lawsuit has the potential to shame and name a lot of the racists in the NFL, really open the windows, clear the air a little bit, and and open up some space for some more opportunity, strictly from a public relations standpoint, like having one coach, two coaches. I mean, that's just not going to fly going forward. So we'll have to see if it's able to do that. I mean, one of the big things is that Brian Flores has said, I'm not going to sign an NDA. I'm not going to settle out of court. I'm taking this all the way. We'll see if that happens, but you know the NFL is very vulnerable. And one, one last thing to say about that is another reason why they're so vulnerable in this case is not just because of the very obvious discrimination, but because part of the suit is that Brian Flores says that his franch that the franchise owner Stephen Ross in Miami offered him a hundred thousand dollars for basically each game that he would throw so they could get a higher draft pick. The NFL now is in bed with the gambling industry a thousand percent to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And nothing could damage that relationship more than the perception that the league itself wasn't on the up and up. My kid watches a lot of sports on TV, so I sort of catch it secondhand. But I noticed a tremendous amount of advertising. And there was some of it during the Super Bowl, which I actually watched. But there's a tremendous amount of advertising for all these uh, online betting schemes. Is this a symptom of what's going on, this this imbrication, as we used to say back in theory, had world in the 80s uh, between um, sports and gambling? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's the NFL that they're run by very, very wealthy, very smart people. And I think they're seeing this economy and saying it's time to pick the meat off the bones. I mean, I think it's vulture capitalism. The same thing with their new love of crypto. Uh, They're not going towards manufacturing. It used to be that the NFL would be banning players and keeping them out of the Hall of Fame and for any even slight whiff that they were involved with gambling or Vegas. And now they have a team in Vegas. So, you know, they and all the pro sports teams have found religion on gambling because they figured out a way to profit off it. I mean, it's a pretty banal story, honestly. And then what about the audience? You, you said earlier that uh, the audience enjoys the, the spectacle of this racial hierarchy, um, this evocation of the old plantation structure. Who is the audience exactly? And how does it differ from other sports? That's the thing is like they're trying to be all things to all people because the NFL wants to be this monocultural force in a country that's riven by division. So there's a section of its audience that skews right wing. It's probably the largest section of its audience that sees no problem with the current setup of things. Uh, But there's a very large and growing section of its audience that wants the league to be accountable to what they believe to be social norms and racism and discrimination. You know, as you know, for for, particularly for this young generation, which is more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of this country, it's just not going to fly. And it's just it just won't. So the audience is stratified. The audience is mixed. The audience is America. And, you know, it's a lot harder to to market to one America in 2022. How does it compare to other sports, the audience? It skews more right. It's larger and it hits every corner of the country. Most other sports are really regional when you really drill it down. Uh, the NFL is the only one that you can't speak about as being a regional sport. But it's got that reputation for being Southern, but not true. Uh, not anymore. I mean, certainly college football, I would argue, is a Southern and particularly Southeastern phenomena above all else. Uh, But no, the NFL, I mean, you're going to find big fans throughout the Midwest, uh, Northern California, 
Washington State. I mean, the Seahawks nation is is rabid. I mean, it's everywhere. And then finally, uh, you know, the, the Kaepernick affair uh, certainly uh, got right wing sports fans all up in arms, you know, bringing politics into sports. And uh, I imagine this is going to intensify it. This suit is going to intensify that feeling. What are you hearing uh, people's reactions uh, among the fan community? Oh, to the, to the suit itself? Yeah. I mean, it's provoking extremely strong emotions because people see the injustice. I mean, for years, it's been like three black coaches, five black coaches. I think the highest it ever got was six. And it was an embarrassment for the league. And when it got down to one, that embarrassment became a crisis. And that, that's broadly recognized. That was Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation and author of The Kaepernick Effect. He's the producer behind The Shield, a forthcoming documentary on the cultural politics of the NFL. And now working at Amazon and trying to unionize it. Justine Medina works at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, the most anomalous borough of New York City. As almost everyone knows, Amazon pays its workers miserably and exploits them mercilessly, which is how the company's founder, the ill-dressed Jeff Bezos, accumulated enough money, $183 billion as of this morning, to shoot himself into space, sort of, barely. Here's Justine Medina, one of the workers trying to organize the Amazon labor union, with more. Describe your job. What do you do and what's the, the facility like where you work? Yeah. Have you ever been to an Amazon facility? No. They're awful. I have a comrade who, when he first showed up to one, who he was coming out just to help with the support a, a demonstration that we were doing at the facility. And he popped his head inside and he could really only do just that because you can't, there are security gates that prevent you from going past the entrance unless you work there because you have to swipe your badge to get into these gates. But he walked inside and he was like, wow, this is like a military base, <laughs> <laughs> which is like an interesting thing to say, but I think it's not inaccurate. You walk in to the facility, there are these security gates that are like impossible to get past turnstiles unless you badge in and there's like security guards at the entrance. There's metal detectors that they have not used since I've been there since I started in September, but I think they're getting ready to try to start using all of that again. So you have to like go through metal detectors coming and going. They're definitely trying to bring back lockers that you have to put your stuff in so you're not allowed to have anything with you when you're in there so that it's even more like a prison that's sort of what it's like to be in there especially when you're in a if you're in a job doing a job where you're like by yourself doing the job all day because then it's like 10 hours of of solitary it's very loud it's like a constant din of noise all the time mechanical or are people allowed to talk to each other mechanical People do chit chat when they can, but a lot of the jobs you just can't based on like the spacing and layout and design of the flow of the production line. Talking to one another would, would slow down your your numbers, your productivity rates. How heavily are you monitored? Oh, just constant. I mean, literally constantly. I mean, there's security cameras everywhere. So at my warehouse, we don't have those. You know, at some warehouses, they have you wear like a tracking device type thing. You know, I've, you know, we've all sort of heard the stories about this at Amazon facilities and we don't have that, but they are tracking you by the minute based on your station and by your computer. And if you step away for like more than five minutes, the system notes that, and then eventually you can just sort of get fired. That's where you, the, you hear the stories of like people step away to go to the bathroom, you know, one too many times and they can get mark this time off task and then get in, just get written up and fired for that uh, very reason. And that's why you hear the stories about people having to wear diapers, the Amazon facilities, because they don't feel comfortable leaving to, to go to the bathroom or they might lose their job. Well, if you've been there since September, does that make you a longtime employee? I mean, the turnover must be furious. The turnover is insane. Yeah, it's 150% turnover rate. I suppose I last longer than some there are definitely people that have been there longer than me but it's designed to, to turn people over pretty quickly with the horrible working conditions 
also all the ways it's designed to sort of that you're like constantly breaking. I, I heard one of my comrades in the union describe to someone recently how, you know, it's like everyone that works there is breaking like 10 or 20 policies a day just in order to like do their job and and hit the rates you need to hit. For example, right now I work in pack. I pack up boxes, not the last point on the assembly line, but the last point on the assembly line before everything's closed in a box to be sent to someone. And in order to get objects that I need to pack, I have to like, there are these shelves that I have to grab the objects from, but they're taller than I am. So I have to climb up these shelves whenever I'm working throughout the day, constantly, not with a stepladder, literally have to like monkey up the shelves while grabbing stuff and then climbing back down, right? Which is totally unsafe and also definitely against the rules. So that way, eventually, if Amazon wants to fire me, they can be like, oh, you were violating this policy. Or if you fall and get hurt, you know, it helps remove liability from them. And they're like, well, this is your fault. You shouldn't have done that. And it's all on camera, so they know. And it's all on camera, exactly. So they know, (laughs) they know. So what's going on with the union efforts? Um, You've got an election coming up? We do. Yeah, so I work at the JFK 8 warehouse on Staten Island. There are actually four warehouses on that campus. Um, The big one, though, is where I work, JFK 8. There's about 6,000 workers there off-peak. So not during the busy season, there's about 6,000 workers. So the fact that turnover is so high with that many people, it's just, it it is a constant churn of, of thousands of people over a few months, which is wild. We recently, in December, uh, filed for election at JFK 8. We had filed initially earlier in the fall, but Amazon convinced the NLRB to, to throw out our petition by both trying to, you know, hyperinflate the bargaining unit with with some names, you know, we know that wouldn't have been covered by it. And then also threw people out of the bargaining unit but wouldn't tell us why. So we know some of it was related to turnover, but they wouldn't tell us like what names were being like disqualified. So we couldn't combat any misinformation. So anyway, we had to withdraw in the fall, but then we kept gathering signatures to refile and we refiled just for JFK 8, the end of December. And then the end of January, that was approved by the NLRB, which was very exciting. And then yesterday we found out the exact dates of the election. So the election is going to be March 25th through March 30th on site at the warehouse. Amazon wanted it to be inside. So it was sort of fully under their intimidation, but we were able to convince the NLRB that it has to be outside on site in a big tent that they're going to be setting up, you know, near one of the parking garages and they're supposedly going to cover up the security cameras. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they said. And yeah, so we've got five weeks until that starts, a little more than five weeks till that starts, and about six weeks till it's over, which is crazy. And then we also just filed another petition with one of the smaller warehouses on the island. I say smaller, but there's still like 1,500 employees there. We have the hearing date scheduled, which means it's sort of like, tentative approval by the NLRB, but we're still waiting for a full approval for that election. But yeah, we have one election coming up next month. And then within a couple months, we'll have another one. What have you all learned from the Bessemer experience? We've been following along with Bessemer very closely. We wish the workers down there all the luck in the world with this second election. We felt that the first time around, based on both watching and then also going down there. So a lot of the original founders of the ALU went down to Bessemer last year to show solidarity, to talk to workers as Amazon workers themselves. You know, these were all people that had been working at Amazon for years. So they wanted to go down and and support the union efforts. And then from their time on the ground there, it seemed that at least the, the first time around, that there wasn't perhaps enough organization on the inside of the the warehouse. There didn't seem to be like a a huge workers committee. There were a few workers on the inside, but it was the sense that like workers weren't being talked to enough on the inside. That is what in part led to the creation of a new independent union because the strategy that the ALU wanted to go with, which was having it be 
led basically entirely by workers making decisions. And then if there are experienced organizers, having them be salting, coming in to, to be a worker in the facility wasn't a strategy that like the established unions they were talking with wanted to let them lead with. So they were like, well, we'll just do it our way. And like, best of luck, let's work together and like, you know, swap stories. But we have been trying to sort of apply that lesson from the beginning. It seemed like, you know, best of the first time around, there was a lot of like really amazing media coverage and there was a whole, you know, really flashy celebrity push. You know, there's a burning rally and people spoke and blah, blah, blah. For us, we're like, well, we don't need that. Outside media focus is important, but it's not actually what wins you a union thing, right? It's the it's the organization on the inside talking to to workers and also just like it's setting up every day right by the the entrance and talking to coworkers as coworkers amazon tries to be like oh this is a third party they're just coming in to like you know they want to take your money they want to <laughs> take your dues and you know make themselves rich or because amazon is such a good friend to the worker amazon is the best friend of the workers Doug, they give out popcorn sometimes. We're just about out of time, but uh, you've got a solidarity fund. People want to help out? Yes, please. We do have a solidarity fund. It's actually on a GoFundMe. That's really important. It costs money to print out literature every day. You know, it costs money to help buy food and such for workers. It costs money to, to do mutual aid for workers that have become unemployed during this process. And, and we help cover their cover their bills. It's the Amazon Labor Union GoFundMe, and that'll help us get everything we need through the election and hopefully win the thing and uh, become the first unionized Amazon warehouse in U.S. history. That was Justine Medina, a worker at an Amazon facility in Staten Island and one of the organizers of the Amazon Labor Union, which is up for a representation election in late March. For more, including a link to contribute to their Solidarity Fund, visit AmazonLaborUnion.org. As I'm recording this, they're about $8,000 short of their 100000 goal. That's AmazonLaborUnion.org. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Spud Infinity, new from Big Thief. Till next week, bye. <laughs>